Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and as always, Vincent M. Wales is hanging out with me, and we have two very excellent guests that are going to talk to us about well, just an array of things. We have Dave DeBronkhart, known online as ePatient Dave, and we have his doctor, Dr. Danny Sands, well, known online as Dr. Danny Sands. Dave and Dr. Sands are involved with what is known as participatory medicine. But before we get into that part, Dave, I understand that you have been active online for many, many years, and your participation in certain things helped you with a very serious illness. So I got online on CompuServe in 1989. I was initially involved with Desktop Publishing Forum and then was one of the founding sysops on the ADD Forum. And it, eventually I played a role in helping to run six different communities. And ultimately, many years later, that fact played a role in my surviving a pretty much unbeatable cancer. And the thing that's worth realizing is that there is, aside from the social value of community, and there's a lot to be said for that, including when you think you're dying, but there also, there is a dynamic of the flow of useful information that is enabled today by IT that was not possible 50 years ago and to a large extent, the culture of medicine doesn't realize this yet. Because in the medical culture, all valuable knowledge came top down. So that we're in this emerging world right now. My point, the thing that I evangelize all the time, is that what's possible has changed. It's very true. There's, uh, we're still doing a lot of things the same way we did 30 years ago, even though we have... Uh, well, 30 years worth of advancements, people aren't the same. People don't expect the same things. But in, in, in reality, we're, we're treating things the same way that we did in 1980, uh, all the way through to 2018 with, with little movements. That, that's not going to turn out well. Yeah, I think you're right. And I would add that uh, I went in, the reason I do some of the things that I do is because I had a background in technology before I went to medical school. And throughout my medical training, I became frustrated by the fact that we weren't taking advantage of computers and information technology at the point of care to help us take better care of patients. And I was so frustrated because I knew the technologies were there. I knew we could do great things. I vowed to make a difference in this, in this area. And so I sought out training to really learn how to do this in healthcare. And uh, that's what I did. That's what motivated the first part of my first chapter of my career was really helping to provide better tools at the point of care uh, to take care of patients, better take better care of patients. But what happened on the way is that I realized that these same technologies could be tools for patients and caregivers as well and could connect patients and caregivers. And that was something that I learned through my own experience. So I'm, on the one hand, I was developing technologies to improve care uh, at Beth Israel, which became Beth Israel Deaconess. But in my own practice, I was finding that these tools were em empowering to patients as well. For example, I started using email with patients way back in 1991, 
and then when the mid nineties, when the web burst on the scene and everybody was doing email, I, uh, this only accelerated and I became interested in how patients could access healthcare information online. And that led to, uh, I, I published, I co-authored co the very first guidelines on how to use email with patients and ultimately co-developed one of the first patient portals that allowed patients to not only communicate with their healthcare team, but also to see their records online, which became a, a very important tool for the empowered patient. But at the same time, to your point, we've gone a long distance perhaps in improving the way we take care of patients and how we do things, but we haven't really gone far enough. We're not doing enough stuff to improve the way we take care of patients. And too much of the technology that clinicians are using is just used to provide a better tool for billing and we can do better. I often feel that way as a patient. And I think this is where patient influencing comes from. You know, I, I survive and have made a career as uh, what is now labeled a, a patient influencer. I'm a patient in, in mental health. I live with bipolar disorder and I try to influence change, whether it be in greater society or, uh, you know, from a pharmaceutical company to you know, uh, medicine, doctors, clinicians, et cetera. Uh, I try to influence the way people see the patient so that patients can get better care. So it's interesting that, at least for me, that I need to exist. I always kind of thought that 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 establishment existed to make my life better. I didn't realize that I needed to influence them to be good to me. Uh, I thought that their whole purpose was to be good to me, uh, again, as a patient. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, you know, that's a, a really interesting point. And then in all the different interviews that we've done, or at least that I've done, uh, hardly anyone has ever brought up that issue. I, you know, I just, as a moment of background, 11 years ago, I was dying of stage four kidney cancer. The best available data at diagnosis wasn't, it wasn't great data, but the best available data said my expected survival was 24 weeks. And instead, six and a half months after diagnosis, my treatment had finished. And by a couple months later, they said, it looks like you beat it. And so I come at this work from the perspective I I was saved by the best of medicine. I was clearly a case where healthcare achieved its potential against overwhelming odds. And over the next couple of years, Dr. Sands Danny invited me to learn about the e-patient movement, empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled patients, of which he was one of the pioneers. And I became amazed to discover that the profession and the science that had saved my life has gigantic gaps in it, and sometimes things fall through those gaps. So I started studying it and learning, listening as much as I speak to understand healthcare. And what I learned, to your point, is that a couple of centuries ago, physicians truly had no clue what was going on in the body. You know, everybody thought that the body ran on four humors, green bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And then starting somewhere in 100, 100 plus years ago, science entered the picture. And we started to understand that if you did an autopsy on somebody with a lung disease, you saw things. And then for a long time, the only way to know anything useful about what was wrong with a patient, about disease, was to go through this fairly arduous training. 
Now, clearly today, that's no longer the only path to knowing anything useful. And yet, that doesn't make me a doctor. You know, Danny and I are fond of saying, he's the one with the medical training, but I'm the one who knows what's happening in my body. I am no longer mystified by the point you brought up about why would it be that we, you and I on the patient side, need to teach people who are physicians. I think the short answer is that many people who are physicians were explicitly trained, and I've had multiple doctors tell me this, explicitly trained that their value to society is that they know things that patients don't. So to them, the idea that a patient might know something that they don't can seem really threatening to their identity. Danny, can you explain for our listeners specifically what is meant by participatory medicine? Participatory medicine is a, a movement. It's, it's an idea, a concept, in which we think about healthcare as more of a collaboration between patients and doctors. That is, it is not the traditional consumer-provider kind of relationship. It's not a service industry. It's really more of a partnership. It's a collaboration where the topic of that collaboration is the patient's health. And in this collaboration, we have to have all the elements of a successful collaboration in any space. And that would be uh, sharing of information, transparency of information, right? Uh, open communication, shared decision-making, mutual respect, and then engagement. That's really what participatory medicine is. Essentially, I want my patients all to become e-patients. That's where the e-patient term comes from. It's not about electronic, it's about engagement. A great example of this is that a few years after my case, one member of my kidney cancer patient community had a relapse. And so this time around, like six years later, there were a whole new family of drugs available. So the question became, which one do you choose? And there is something in his case that no clinical trial could have embodied. His wife had simultaneously gotten diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, and he was going to be her primary caregiver. So the most important factor for him was the amount of fatigue he would experience. The reason that participatory medicine is the best path to the best possible outcomes in healthcare is because the best possible choices today involve understanding both the range of options and what's important to the person who has the problem. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. I want to play devil's advocate for a moment. The, the first thing that I want to say is I work in, in the mental health space and there's a lot of people that believe that people living with mental illness can't make up their own minds, can't make their own decisions. There's a lot of talk about, you know, forced treatment for our own good and things like that. And it, you know, psychiatrists are, are, are hard to find. There's a shortage of them. So 
they don't really have time to explain things to us. And that's sort of where my, my devil's advocate question comes in. In an article that Dr. Sands wrote, he said that if a patient comes in with misinformation, that it's the perfect opportunity to teach. And while I do agree that uh, doctors are required to provide education when needed, how in the age of managed care do you have time to answer every internet article, every Facebook post, every my neighbor said that a patient could come up with? I mean, you could easily spend eight hours uh, educating one patient. Well, let me, let me give you my perspective on that. I, I still spend a fair amount of time practicing doing primary care medicine. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this could become all-consuming. But I think that traditionally we think about this as something that we need to do as the questions are asked. And I think what we need to understand is that we can spread this over uh, uh, multiple visits. We don't have to just do this in the one visit they have. And it needs to be perfectly reasonable for the doctor to say, and the patient needs to accept this, that, you know, there are a lot of things we need to talk about here. Let's set up another visit to continue this, this, this conversation. What is not reasonable is for uh, a patient to come in and bring, you know, a number of citations from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the web and other people and say, I want you to answer all these things right now. We can do what we can do in the time available. Now, I tend to run over in my clinic because I do try to address most of what people need to deal with within that visit because it's a big hassle for them to come back. But, you know, if a patient has additional things that they need to talk about, it's okay to reschedule these visits. And I think we get stressed out as doctors if we think we have to deal with this right now. And then another piece of this is that we as, as healthcare professionals need to be humble. We need to understand that we don't have all the answers. And as Dave was saying, we don't know what's best for this individual patient. There's not an absolute here. And, and, and our patients may have input into this, and we need to uh, respect that. Ideally, we're working together to solve a problem, and we're not at loggerheads, you know, fighting over every little thing. I might, you know, recommend something to Dave, and my judgment, I think this is the best thing. And Dave might say, you know, I've, I've done my, my homework on this, and, you know, I respect your opinion, but I, I'm choosing not to do this. And that's perfectly okay. Now, on the other hand, Dave can't necessarily demand that I do something that he wants. So if Dave's been on the computer too much, as he is wont to do, and he comes in with a headache, which I clearly know after talking to and examining him is a tension-type headache, and he's demanding an MRI to make sure he doesn't have a brain tumor, that's not going to work. You know, I don't have to accede to Dave's every wish. It's not about doing everything for the patient. That's not what patient-centered is. Patient-centered is having the respect to have a conversation, listening to what the patient has to say, and giving, giving feedback on that. What you're kind of describing in the mental health space is referred to as peer support. Uh, the idea that somebody exactly. living, yeah, somebody living with mental illness or addiction, but is further along in their recovery, can be of assistance to somebody at the beginning of recovery. I have just a, a few very simple questions that I'd like to add. Dave, what is your prognosis these days? So I was diagnosed in January 2007. My treatment started in April and ended in July. I've had nothing since. And we had follow-up scans. The cancer is gone. Excellent. There's no question. Dave, you mentioned that you don't trust doctors with your data because you don't trust them not to corrupt it. What exactly did you mean by that? 
Now, what had happened was people may remember way back then, there was a thing called Google Health, and they said, send us all your data from all your doctors and pharmacies and everything, and we'll organize it for you. And at first, I had blogged right, like, I'm going to trust Google with anything. You know, they caved into the government of China. I don't trust them with privacy. But then I had this epiphany, this realization that if I wanted to have a, a new ecosystem of apps and free-flowing data and real consumer power, that somebody was going to have to put their data into an open platform like this. But this was way back then. So I said, all right, I'm going to put my data in Google Health. And I, I blogged. This is like an earthquake on the Dave planet. But I'm more interested in innovation than I am in privacy, frankly. I refer to myself as a health data nudist. I don't care who sees what if it'll advance the cause. So I, my hospital was the first one that offered a button to move my data into Google Health. So I poked it, and what came across was insanity. Now, I'm someone who has worked with ordinary data in, at the companies in my day job for my whole life. And, you know, in our case, like when I worked in marketing, if we imported a garbage mailing list, the salespeople would kill me. But it turns out that in health IT, the normal IT practices to make sure all the data is valid don't exist to a large extent. So my hospital told Google that I had metastases to my brain. I did not. It even told Google that I had a non-rheumatoid tricuspid valve problem, which I did not. I had nothing of the sort. And so what I said was, give me my damn data because you guys can't be trusted to manage it. Now, I've since learned that a large part of the trouble back then was that my hospital didn't send my clinical reality. My hospital sent my insurance billing codes to Google. And insurance billing codes can be a mess for a variety of reasons. In that sense, insurance data is no good model for what your actual health situation is. But I've since learned also there was a thing on the front page of the Wall Street Journal health section, I think in June 2014, Geisinger, a big health system in Pennsylvania, determined they did an audit and they found that 80% of patient medical records contain mistakes. Some of them are small. I imagine the great majority of them were simply, I'm not taking that medicine anymore. Relatively minor things. One of my chest x-ray reports before cancer identified me as a woman. I don't know what they looked at that made them think I was a 53-year-old woman, even though I had a, a male name. It's not shocking to somebody who knows how things work that something could be wrong that way. But a similar thing, equally simple but much more lethal, happened to my mother a few years ago. After she had a hip replacement, she was transferred to rehab and when her medical records were sent over, somehow her thyroid condition came over backwards. She's actually hyper, and it came over as hypo. And the problem is that the best doctor in the world looking at the wrong information would have prescribed the wrong medicine and could have done real harm. This is one of the easiest ways for people to start getting involved is to exercise their legal right 
ask for everything to see their complete medical record and just check for obvious mistakes. Sure, you're not a doctor. You may not understand everything in there, but you might find things like that. What saved the day in my mom's case is that I have two super activated e-patient sisters, and they knew enough to say, hey, could we check the chart? And the rehab place said, sure, and they found the mistake and fixed it. So there you go. You have patient and family engagement, improving quality of data in the medical record, preventing harm and the resulting costs, and all at no cost to anyone. It's an excellent, excellent point. Danny, the Society for Participatory Medicine, can you tell us what people would get out of it if they join and if they want to, how to do so? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, our website is at participatorymedicine.org. And joining the society makes people a part of this amazing community of diverse stakeholders in healthcare. It gives one access to our online forums where people can participate in all kinds of amazing discussions about healthcare and technology and engagement and challenges and so on. Our members also participate in various aspects of the organization. We have leadership opportunities opportunity to participate in, in planning our, our conference, which takes place each year in the fall. There are just so many opportunities with this group. Uh, we would love to have you. And if you're connected with a company or an organization, we'd love to have them be corporate partners. We are a very inclusive organization. Our membership dues are very low, only $50 a year and or $300 for lifetime membership, which is uh, less than the cost of a year of membership with many organizations. But if $50 is too much and if you have a challenge, we still want you and we have a way for you to join for free if necessary. I'm a member and I can personally attest to the value of it as a patient influencer and as somebody who is living with mental illness. And of course, psychcentral.com's founder, Dr. John Grohall, is one of the founding members and obviously the Psych Central show supports it as well. I actually worked for John for two years before I stumbled upon uh, the Society for Participatory Medicine on a link on Psych Central. I was looking for something else, and I was like, what, what is this? And I joined via a special. I think it was like buy one year, get one free or something like that. And uh, yeah. you know, I've been kind of lurking, and, and then I, I asked John about it, and John's like, yeah, that, that's what I do. I'm like, oh, okay. I was like, three, three words, I think. And yeah, I, I've been, uh, it, it's been great because people in the mental health space believe that the reason doctors are ignoring them is because of the mental illness. When in actuality, yeah. it's, it's this culture. It's how doctors feel about patients and how we respond to these things, et cetera. And many people with many different diagnoses are all going through the same thing. And it, you know, we often feel very isolated because of the mental illness when in actuality, we just have a lot more in common with people than we realize. Um, and in a way, that's progress. Yeah. You, you know, we're not alone. Really, the, the cultural context in which these conversations and these relationships take place really is evolving. Uh, just real quick, you mentioned that you have a yearly conference. When is the next conference? Where is it? And is it open to anyone? The SPM 2018 conference will be on October 17th in Boston. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for agreeing to be on the show. It was a wonderful conversation and we enjoyed having you. It was fun. It's Thank great. You. Thanks very much.
No, you're very welcome. Thank Bye-bye. you everyone for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. And everybody, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.